Hey, welcome, Neil. Another episode of Hipstorians, but you're joining us not from Dublin, but from Hamburg this evening. Is that right? Yes, I'm on the continent. Indeed. Yeah. Checking out some submarines. Checking out some submarines, checking out some World War II stuff. Obviously, Hamburg's got a lot of great history. Uh, I'm here for World War II history, but yeah, it's great. It's a fascinating city, Derek. We'll have to make it a historian's venture some, at some stage. We, we'll do that. Now, we're getting some of the bank now. We've always taken off on a few holidays. But anyhow, uh, all that aside, we are here yeah. to speak with Annie Jacobson. And this is, this is a real treat. This harks back to things I'd been very interested in on foot of watching the X-Files in a smoky room with my friends when I was 18, 19 and 20. And these books weren't out at that that stage. For the benefit of those who may not know Annie's work or be familiar with it, um, you are an investigative reporter and author of books that go deep into the American deep state and works such as Area 51, The Pentagon Brain. And we'll touch on some of these and then get into your latest release, First Platoon, which sounds like an ordinary kind of war story, but really it's a story that it actually it's a story <laughs> scarily that validates the sci-fi writer Philip K. Dick's mm-hmm. uh, short story Minority Report, where in a very pressing story it was, uh, where the state can uh, predict crimes before they are committed, which I think is the ultimate aim of some of this stuff. But to go back to I suppose my my X-File days and the Area 51 really the mystique of it how did you I mean like what brought you to go into this type of investigative reportage because it must be quite difficult you come up against a lot of I suppose naysayers and people go oh that's bad this is all you know this conspiracy theory stuff but you you don't deal with it like that at all you you get the facts well I would say first first of all thank you for having me um and first and foremost I'm a storyteller so I'm a I report on war and weapons and U.S. national security and secrets. But what interests me most are the people behind those stories, the extraordinary men and women, mostly men, I should say, in the field I write in, who find themselves in these situations that most of the rest of us could never even imagine, maybe let alone handle. And so all of my books have this thread going back to World War II, how, you know, begin, sort of in the aftermath of World War II, how America took the pole position in national security and immediately began preparing for World War III. And how and why they did that is incredibly interesting to me. And all the people that I have interviewed in my six books since speak to that through every war. I'm so glad we're going to talk about First Platoon because in many ways, it's the most frightening of my books. I mean, the number of people who ask me, because I am the journalist who broke many of the stories about Area 51, getting the first, you know, several dozen CIA people to go on record with me there. Most people ask me about aliens as if that is the big threat. And while that is super interesting on the access of information, disinformation, misinformation, propaganda, the real threat, I think, lies in exactly what you hit upon, which is this idea of ubiquitous technical surveillance, 
i.e. the minority report. Yeah, I, I, that does really, really frighten me. Um, but I know we've, we've, we've handed over a lot of our information already to Google and freely we, we do this. Um, and it's only a step away then when we're getting into the, the, the DNA samples. Um, I, I got given a, a kit for a Christmas present five, six years ago to kind of test. Everyone's kind of suspicious of my Irish roots because I don't look like a very typical Irishman, apparently. So I got one of these DNA kits. And this is before I would have been thinking along the lines of biometrics, what we're going to be talking about. And I was like, mm, I'm not giving a sample of my DNA to somebody I don't know. So it stayed in the box and since I don't, I, I don't know where it's gone. But this, this idea of, of how America got into this position after the Second World War. A lot of it must have stemmed from um, the atomic bomb and the fear of who might get access to that, you know, and, and why America took over the role of being the, the, the world's police. And what, you know, that fear, that deep-seated fear then, the paranoia that, that uh, ensued after World War II, which led to Operation Paperclip and bringing all, like Neil, you'll be very uh, interested in all this side, Neil would be our World War II aficionado and expert, but bringing all these essential war criminals over over to America and using the, the technology. That was, yeah, I, I don't know, it was, it was, America really got deep into spycraft and keeping a lot of stuff secret from its own people. So the power came into the hands of the few. And what do you think drove that? Well, I like to look at the actual specifics of things because sometimes it's in the specifics we can we can conclude the general, right? So for for example, with, with Paperclip, um, and the way that, that I got interested in paperclip is as I was wrapping up Area 51, which deals all with all kinds of overhead surveillance techniques for the early days of the CIA to be able to spy on the Soviet Union from very high up. And so there were a lot of top aircraft designers involved. And one of them was a guy called Siegfried Kneemeyer, a very German sounding name. And Kneemeyer won the highest award that the Pentagon gives out. And when I dug deeper into it, as I was finishing up Area 51, because it was kind of a tangent, I learned that Kneemeyer had also won the top award for the Reich, from the Third Reich, because he was Goring's favorite aircraft designer. And I asked myself, how do you go from being a favorite in the Third Reich to a favorite at the Pentagon? And that led the way for Paperclip. Um, very specifically on Paperclip, the reason why we took all the scientists was because there was an idea among a small group of men, it's almost always a small group of men, um, that, you know, whereby the British and the Americans were going over to, in the aftermath and the ruins of the Reich to capture all the, you know, V2 parts and all the, explo exploit this technology that the Germans were so ahead of, suddenly a bunch of them decided, why not just grab the actual brains, the actual men themselves? I mean, put aside, you know, any war crimes they may have committed. What's more important is we get them before the Russians do. That was the American idea. And this becomes such a great analogy to me and to my research and to my work and to my reporting and writing because there's always a reason. 
You know, there's always a reason which the end justifies the means. And I think parsing that out becomes super interesting because then one can, you know, ask themselves today what they think about a certain program. And you can have a, I think history gives you a teeny tiny lens to be able to say, for example, when we're talking about this big surveillance program that's going on that came out of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, people could easily say like, oh, but it's necessary, you know, and then you have to balance that out with, okay, but let's look back at history. It's always necessary. So what does yeah, that mean? And so, so, but the Russians were doing the same, Annie, right? I mean, yeah. the Americans were only doing what the Russians were doing also when, when once they decided or realized that they were about to win the Second World War, suddenly then the whole balance of power shifted, right? They once allies then realized that there were going to be enemies very, very soon. So the Americans were just stepping in and doing what, what the Russians were doing, right? In terms of, of, of grabbing, the, grabbing the brain power. Absolutely. And there was a very real threat there. I mean, I spent a lot of times in the Bundes archives in Germany with translators, you know, reading these documents to me and looking at that original source material and realizing, just thinking geographically. And of course, you all in Europe are so much more familiar with geography there than the than many Americans. Right. But just looking at Poland. OK. And what I learned was as the as the allies could only bomb so far east right so the reich kept moving its more advanced and more frightening future weapons into you know east so that they were out of reach of the of the allies so you had the biological weapons you had the chemical weapons um you had all of the top reich scientists setting up their labs in poland and so when the russians invaded from the east guess what they got they got those labs and the intelligence world, um, the Americans began to learn that in the last months of World War II and became very afraid. Oh my God, what do they have? And of course the German scientists, the Nazis, sneaky as they were, played this card incredibly well. And I know this from looking at the, you know, the, the, the declassified documents, the actual interviews with the Nazis themselves, oh, yes, 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 I had this there. You know, there was kind of this sense of they knew the, the, the biological weapons makers and the chemical weapons makers in particular, facing war crimes as they were, were able to juice this idea of if we just tell the Americans that all the good stuff is now in Russians' hands, we will be much more likely to get a really cush job. That's exactly what happened. Yeah, very cynical, but, but, but very understandable, too, on a, on a very human level. I mean, you're thinking about, you know, you're coming to the end of the Second World War, Third Reich is in, in ruins. You're just thinking about survival, a very human instinct. I mean, it all comes down to the people. I couldn't agree more. And you you look at when you really get it, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a history nerd, even though I write mm. these books that are even sometimes accused of being, you know, sensational. The amount of, and I think that's just because the subject matter is sensational. I mean, yeah. how can you, how can it not be sensational that the American government hired Nazis and brought them here and they built up our weapons programs. And then we had a whole propaganda campaign to help them present themselves as the good Germans. I mean, 
talk about being complicit. I laugh when people say conspiracy isn't possible. I just say, look in my books where two or more are gathered with power and money and secrecy. My God, you can make a conspiracy. Yeah, it's a no-brainer to me, Annie. Like, I'm convinced even you're preaching to the converted here, at least on to one person. <laughs> I'm completely on your side with this one. But can we just rule out aliens in Area 51 then, completely? You know, one of the big revelations in my book of Area 51, and it made people go berserk, um, it was the first time I really dealt with, like, a groundswell of people going against me. And that was the actual conspiracy theorist who said, she's nuts, you know, because I put forth the, I don't want to call it an argument, I just simply put forth a set of facts given to me by sources that the idea at Area 51, as far as the aliens were concerned, was this fact that Stalin himself was obsessed with the War of the Worlds. And Stalin himself was very consumed with these ideas of Black propaganda hoaxes. You can look at the early CIA documents, as I did, and see um, the first CIA director, General Walter Bedell Smith, who had actually been Eisenhower's chief of staff, Ike's hatchet man, they called him, you know, a man so, so succinct in what he did. He was, he learned, when he learned that Stalin was obsessed with black propaganda and, and interested in UFOs, Bedell Smith feared that these UFO hoaxes, what he, what he interpreted, Dell Smith interpreted as UFO hoaxes in the United States, these UFO spiting, sought sightings and the American public's obsession with them could be used as a means to exploit our early warning system, kind of like chaff, you know, it would just, it would confuse the early warning systems and the Russians could come in for an attack. And so that was the CIA's early position on UFOs. And they made a decision to exploit that. And as I write in Area 51, they actually had an office of exploitation. And so when the U-2 comes along and it's flying out at Area 51, you know, at 70,000 feet, higher than anyone could imagine flying, its wings are twice as long as its fuselage, people are mistaking it for a UFO. And the CIA thinks brilliant, you know, mm. better that than the Soviets know about our spy plane. And, you know, it's a much longer, much darker story um, that you can read about in the book. But in the end, I kind of reveal some things that were told to me that really put the idea of aliens on its, on its head, shall we say, and leave a lot of people saying, you know, I wish it were aliens because it's a really very dark program that involves human experimentation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And like living in this this world of secrecy, and is it is it the fact that humans find it very difficult to keep a secret that uh, you were able to to find people to to speak out about? It? I know, obviously, when they're out of you know the jobs that they're in and, and whatnot. I, I went looking for yourself and sent you a message and said, "Hi, you know, come on the show." That's it. I can't imagine it's as easy as that to go and find some CIA sources with you know information like you got. You know, it's not a bad analogy. Okay. It's really not a bad analogy. And 
fortune favors the prepared mind. So if you throw enough of effort at something, something wonderful pans out. That's my experience. Of course, you need the lucky breaks that a journalist always has to get. And I write about them constantly in my in the afterwards of my books, when the paperback edition comes out, I often write about how I got the story because people are very interested in that. And I think it's inspiring to others, whatever your profession may be, that the only way you lose is if you give up. And so you can't begin a story, at least in my experience, I'm going to try to find that person and get them to talk to me. It's it's a it's a opening of the doors and you speak with one person at length, one general says, you know, is talking about this and you say, might you be able to introduce me to that fellow? And you get a maybe yes or a maybe no. Um, but you just stay at it and eventually you you find your way through your story. But some of the most remarkable um, stories come by fate and circumstance, I find. And I'll tell you an example, right? One of my favorites. When I was, when I was working on Area 51, because of course that book was so, there were, you're dealing, whenever you're dealing with nuclear secrets, there there's some serious levels of classification and even though area 51 is often thought of as the u.s air force cia base for spy planes it sits inside of america's nuclear weapons testing facility the nevada test site and so there i was one i would i would constantly talk to sources and then they would say things to me maybe even little code words or program names, and then I would be able to try and locate those source documents from those tips, shall we say. And in Nevada, the Department of Energy, the former Atomic Energy has its giant archive out there. And it's adjacent to a museum, which shows a lot of photographs of the bombs going off. And I would go, I was in the archive one day trying to, you know, following this lead that the sources had told me, because I had heard there was a dirty bomb test at Area 51, which is so outrageous that the government simulated a dirty bomb test. And I wanted to know about that. And I was told, well, it's unclassified, so you should be able to find it. And I'd been given a bunch of different code names. But of course, I couldn't get any of the documents. And I had this tiff with a librarian one day. Her name was Alice. And she was just like, so I knew she knew what I was after. You know, it's a very small library. So instead of, you know, being rude, as my grandmother taught me, I went into the, to the museum to just look around and cool down. And the security guard comes up to me and he was kind of this 80 year old older man. And he said, I saw you in here a month ago with one of my friends who is another source, you know, da, da, da. what's wrong? You look very upset. And I was said, I am. And I told him the story. And he, his name is Richard Mingus. And he said, well, that's quite funny because I was actually the security guard on duty during that dirty bomb test. So why don't you tell Alice that Richard said you want the files for Project 57? Wow. And he said, I'll come with you. And we marched up to Alice and said, we'd like these files. And lo and behold, there they were. That's amazing. There you go. That's brilliant. Yeah. That's absolutely you can, brilliant. I can see you getting excited there, Neil. It's that, it's that kind of uh, yeah. detective work. And just like, what, what a great job. But, you know, as, as a fellow journalist, I can completely relate to what Annie is saying there. Sometimes you can play away at something and be knocking on doors and have them shut in your face. And then just one day, just like Annie related there so well, click a finger, some, something just really quirky will happen like that. 
and it opens all the doors. It's amazing. It's amazing how that happens. And that's the fortune favors the prepared mind of it. If yeah. you if you really are ready to receive the information and you have do and you are flexible with which door might open and what door might stay shut, you kind mm -hmm. of wind up where where you are supposed to, I believe. And it also helps to have deadlines. People often ask <laughs> yeah. me that about being a journalist. It's like if you have a deadline, if you're on contract, you have to get it. So you have to find yeah. something, right? I can't, I really wonder what it would be like to have an open-ended book date. You know, you would just, you know, you're balancing out this idea of being a detective, like you say, with the idea of perfection, which really does never, never exist. I completely relate to that, Annie. As a fellow professional journalist, I've written a few books myself, but I wonder how many vanity projects are still on people's uh, shelves in their minds because they don't have the contract and they don't have the deadline to get to make it work. That's the only way that I can work personally, for, for sure. But could I ask you, what, what got you interested in all of this to begin with? I mean, when, uh, you know, myself and Derek obviously are history nerds. I'm in Hamburg right now, particularly for that reason, look at where the uh, Bismarck, the battleship Bismarck was built. Uh, I was down there today looking at docks down there. And that's, that's what will bring me away from my wife and my children for the weekend, gracious as they are to let me go. I will go that far just to see where, where a bit of history was made. So I've got my own reasons for that, but we're not on here for that. We're on here for you. So where, where did you develop your interest from? I, as I said, I'm a storyteller born that way. You know, I went to boarding school when I was 15 years old with a typewriter. Um, I was going to write no matter what before it was glamorous or popular. Maybe it's always been glamorous and popular, but that was my, what I knew I was meant to do. And I was writing fiction and I just couldn't sell anything. And I found myself decades later wondering whether I should give up. And I went to a mentor and asked her exactly that. And she said, stop making shit up. It's the truth that matters. Go be right. a journalist. And I, Great advice. I, read, I thank her in every one of my books because, you know, she also told me an interesting thing, which was you also have difficulty following direction. So write with an editor. And I thought that is, you know, when you're a journalist, you know, it's like, I need 500 words tonight. You're kind of on this and, and you're willing to have people who are wise uh, and experienced give you their opinion about this not that know that follow this and that is incredibly important behind mm -hmm. every great author is a team of people certainly in my case 100 percent. and then to to come on to first platoon so like this story starts with fingerprints really and um, i think the name of your first chapter is the panopticon so this is the this this prison whereby the jailer can see all the prisoners but the prisoners can't see the jailer and this this sense it, it's supposed to instill fear and you know make people behave and, and whatnot but it was in leavenworth wasn't it 1903 or something like that 1904 that's where, where it begins. There was an old system that was the Bertillon system where everything was measured from your, your height, the length of your feet, facial dimensions, all that kind of thing. And then you had to go and if somebody 
fitted the wanted poster or whatnot, which is incredible to think, because this isn't all that long ago. Like, and there's evidence I know you mentioned of uh, fingerprints uh, being used as signatures, essentially, way back in, in, in history. So tell us a little bit of the origin story here of First Platoon. So I think one of the reasons why origin stories interest me so much is exactly what you're saying, that it demystifies things, right? So I write about these very complex subjects for basically the little old lady in South Dakota. Yes, I'm read by the generals at the Pentagon, but I like, I am a layman in a way, and I like writing that. I like simplifying things. And if you go back to the origin story, it just takes everything, it takes the big, the big puff out of the big mystique, the big pretense out of a lot of things, both in terms of how new technologies are in our world, but also how they, when you know how something began, you can, you can, you can understand it a bit more. So the origin story of First Platoon, the one liner to think about is this, that before 9-11, the Defense Department was thinking about fighting armies. And so we had all this satellite technology and overhead and all of these things I've written about to like, look at what a country might be doing. Look at how, you know, thousands of people might be, Saddam Hussein might have all these people lined up on the border with Kuwait, right? And suddenly at 9-11, that changed. It was about individual people. It was about individual people. This hell could be wreaked by one person. And in the early days on the war on terror, I found a document that was stunning to me. Donald Rumsfeld went to the Defense Science Board, which is the sort of the people who advise the Defense Department what weapons to build. So they have a real vested interest in what's going on. And they said to him, you, what we need to find terrorists is a Manhattan Project, Manhattan Project-like system to tag, track, and locate people. Okay, so it's a very simple concept. And then the idea is, the subtext of that is before they commit crimes. And that's the minority report of it, okay? Because what good is it going to do to tag, track, and locate people if you're just watching everybody? That's not what it's for. Watching is to take action. And so that is exactly what the Defense Department did. So just, you can fast forward to where we are now, and I'll go back to the, the origin story in a minute, but to, so people have a context, you know, when, you, when you're driving around and you see, you guys have it in, in Europe where you have a lot more CCTV cameras in England, certainly, but now we have them. And when you go into the airport and you stick your face in the machine, they're not just taking your photograph, they're taking your iris scan. So you have iris scans, fingerprints, DNA, images, facial images. This is, these are technology systems that have been designed to tag, track, and locate people. And it all began in the war on terror. And it began much more open sourced than the Manhattan Project did, right? So a lot of these systems were publicly available to understand and know about, but very few people understood them as the system and what it was designed to do. And the perhaps misnomer of First Platoon is that in Afghanistan, these units of very young soldiers, American soldiers, were sent out to tag, track, and locate people. But to tag and track 
massive quantities of people. The Defense Department had a then secret program to catalog 85% of the people living in Afghanistan. And I'll let you ask specific questions so that it so that I don't just sprawl and recount the whole the first platoon. But the idea, okay, so this is the last idea perhaps to, for people listening to think about that in the old days, you had to be a bad guy to be in a biometric system. You had to be a bad guy. You had to have crossed this is I'm talking about America because I'm not as familiar with Europe, but America, to be in the FBI's catalog where they knew who you were by your fingerprints or your DNA, you had to have crossed with law enforcement. Mm -hmm. The rest of us were just living our lives. And that all changed after the war on terror. So it went from having a big catalog of bad guys in case a suspected bad guy gets stopped and make what's called a match hit. Suddenly the idea shifted, which is why don't we just have everyone in our system. And the dot, dot, dot is really what I raise in First Platoon. Because why do you need to have everybody? I get it why you need to have bad guys. But why do you need to have everybody? And I have lots of ideas about that, but I'll let, I'll let you maybe hone in on some questions. Well, I, I have one that jumped just, just as you were talking about this, Annie, I, I had this thought, okay, and this is a question directly to you and to you, Derek, and to all our listeners, right? And here's, here's what I feel about this, right? Taking your points on board. I've done nothing wrong. I'm not a bad guy, right? So when I go through the airport, which I just did this weekend and will do on Sunday, I know and I'm aware that I'm being tracked, traced, Followed, not followed, but I'm my movements are being tracked and documented. But I've done nothing wrong. I'm not a criminal. Uh, I haven't committed any crimes. So I'm thinking, what do I care? How does it affect me? I haven't crossed law enforcement, nor hopefully am I likely to. <laughs> so I have to be honest, even though I'm aware that all this is going on, I'll put this to you, Annie, and Derek, and, and to our listeners. I really, not that I don't care, because there's not really much I can do about it, but I don't really mind if, if that's the right word. If this is the modern future world that we now live in, where your, your movements are tracked to trace whether you like it or not, or whether you download this app or whether you don't, or you go on Facebook or you don't, or you listen to this podcast or you don't. Your movements are being monitored, whether you like it or not. Now, you can that can keep you up all night. And I, I suggest that if it keeps you up at night it's because you're up to something me personally i'm a good boy i'm not up to anything so it doesn't keep you up at night am i being naive here yeah <laughs> <laughs> that, that's, that is one argument and people use that argument all the time but let me give you the counterpoint of what happens mm. because really what we're talking about the big theme here is rule of law and it's the social contract the going back to sort of Hobbes and Locke, this idea that I as a citizen must give up certain rights for the good of many. And that's kind of what you're talking about. Like, I'm not doing anything bad. If you feel the need to you know, know who I am, that's fine, right? But I want you to think about what happened in the war, in the war theater with all of this. So I interviewed for First Platoon um, 
a group of people called the PEGIS operators. And PEGIS stands for Persistent Ground Surveillance. And they would live in these outposts in Afghanistan. And they were responsible for watching the video feed on a massive blimp that was flying just out of height of an AK-47 shot over the war theater. And they were watching people because the Defense Department developed a new technology called pattern of life or called activity-based intelligence. And this is the idea that you are what you do, okay? So you go into the, you know, oh, he's a historian, he's in Hamburg, he's looking at submarines. You're not doing anything wrong, but you are what you do. You're a historian, we know that. So in the war theater, one of the things that the PGIS operators were looking for, pretty much the thing, was whether or not someone was burying an IED. And the reason that they were looking for that is because soldiers were dying, American soldiers. And the end result, if you could determine that someone was burying an IED, was that you would kill them. So the PGIS operator would call in for the airstrike. And it's that simple of a line. That guy's burying an IED, kill him. Okay. Now, lots of problems happened, and one of them stands as an analogy, which I'm going to talk about. So the PGIS operators got very skilled, and this is a bit gross for your listeners, but war is not pretty, right? It's gross in a weird way. Um, in Afghanistan, in southern Afghanistan, this area, there are very few toilets. So most people go to the bathroom outside, and men squat. Men go outside. Women go in the river. And so the men squat to go to, to defecate. So the PGIS operator had to be careful because you didn't want to kill someone for taking a crap. And so the camera systems got refined with thermal imaging to really be able to delineate that because the temperature at which you defecate, what comes out of the body is a different color when you're looking through thermal imaging. Now think about what I'm saying. Think about what I'm saying. I could stop right there. And if Philip Dick were still alive, he would roll over in his grave, right? So make sure the guy's not defecating. If he's not, he's bearing an idea, drone strike him, okay? Then a different, you know, that is one of a host of problems that I was talking about. Now, you may say to yourself, well, that was the war theater. The end justifies the means. Separate from the fact that we didn't win the war, separate from the fact that Afghanistan was largely a repeat of Vietnam, which I write, touch upon in many of my books, um, you have a situation where the people who created those systems come home to America, they work in the defense contracting world, and they begin to sell their systems to the United States. So now, and I interviewed Ross McNutt, who is the lead technologist who has these systems flying around the United States, doing what is called persistent wide area surveillance, watching people. And because computers have gotten so advanced and you can store vast amounts of data that was not possible 10 years ago, what is happening in the United States, as I write about in First Platoon, is these systems, these camera systems are just flying around in circles. You can see them in the United States. And they are just simply recording what is happening on the ground. And when a crime happens, that 
data is accessed sometimes. And so that's where we get into the real problem because what crimes are being solved? What investigative actions are being taken and what is being ignored? And this becomes a massive philosophical problem about rule of law. Yeah, and, and you write about it, I think, um, is it some child in New York that gets mistakenly brought in and gets fingerprinted? And was it his mo mother then had to go through hell and high water in order to get that removed from their, their database? But she was successful in that, am I right? The DNA technology has advanced so incredibly fast, it's astonishing. And long gone are the days where I need to give you a, a swab or a blood sample or even a COVID nose test for you to have my DNA. We are at the point where DNA can be pulled off of a, and this is, by the way, eight, nine years ago, um, we're at the point where you can be holding a cup. I can set it down and the CIA can swoop in or any intelligence agency or the FBI or law enforcement, take that cup pull my fingerprints off it, not just for fingerprints, but for DNA, from a few micrograms of DNA. And this is precisely what happened that I write about in First Platoon with a young boy who was a minor, who was a, you know, considered a suspect in a murder. And the law enforcement officer came in and offered him a McDonald's soda, which he said yes to. And when he was done, they took the cup away, removed the straw with a gloved hand, bagged it for DNA. And there's a nefarious kind of premeditated feeling about that on the one hand, or you could say, as many people do, well, wait a minute, he was a suspect in a murder, you know, right? So now as it turns out, the kid was freed and his mother was outraged and some civil rights groups got involved and she agreed to leave it as it was just to make sure that my son's DNA is obviously not going to be in your database. At which point she was told that actually is not possible. Meaning to try and then it's not possible, meaning it's certainly not easy. And to try and get that child, that minor, that innocent minor's DNA out of a database for law enforcement was an extraordinary challenge. So again, that begs the question, the bigger questions about who, who's in charge and also who's in charge of all of this, but what happens to all of this biometric information and could it potentially be used against someone in a crime? See, like the thing for me, like, like I don't agree with, with any of this. That's, that's my viewpoint on it. Doesn't keep me up at night, though. I will say that. Uh, and I am quite glad that I live in the fair isle of Ireland where like, I, I, I don't even think if you got brought in for being drunk and disorderly or something like that, I don't even think you get fingerprinted. The guards are a bit more like the guard, as we call them here, but how, you know, now don't be doing that. Okay, we'll see you. We have got, we have modernized, but it's, very relaxed and we we don't really police forces and carry guns everything's kind of fine but 
I, I don't like the idea of Google having my information. I don't, you know, I don't, most of the time I just click, oh, accept cookies, whatever. But this idea that somebody is taking all this information and has it, and then I've got to trust that the people looking after it are going to do good with it or, or handle it safely. You're not always going to have the government in power that you hope or even voted for, yet they have everything on you. And, and if you, like, I, I would look across to the east and look at the, the Chinese model of state control of its population and like apps that tell you when you're 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 being bold that that's ultimately where i think it goes and what will happen next is you're ended up you've got a phone and on it is a scorecard and you get to i know in california there is was it three strikes and you're out on a few a few three commit three criminal offenses and i and i can see in, and, and there's money to be made out of it as well. I mean, I, like, I suppose it, this is a little bit maybe off, off topic, but the prison system in America is, is literally, it's, it's just a capitalist venture now at this stage, isn't it? More people in prison, well, the more money that these private companies make. And this information and data storage could, could be used to incarcerate more people for profit. Well, there's no, there's no doubt that rule of law issues are, becoming increasingly a concern, right? I mean, you just look at the protests we have in America and I, my thought slash fear is that the rule of law results will become more automated. I'm not saying people are going to start being drone striked in America necessarily, but this idea that you will be able to tag track and locate people when you need to find them is becoming increasingly more real. Yeah, interesting. And I suppose, again, okay, this is just an opinion question for you, Annie, and I choose not to answer it or, or not. You're in California, and there's, I suppose, the Californian view of the world and the view of America is quite different to a lot of other parts of America. And um, I mean, do you ever see secession between a number of states splitting away from the union at any time in the next, say, 100 years? You know, that's an interesting question. And I should refer you to a futurist that I, at Stanford, that I talk to a lot because he, his theory is yes, which is just a, a shocking concept to me. I mean, but he most definitely speaks of that. I think more to the point that you made a moment ago about the Chinese situation, right? And like how you don't know how the government will roll out. And the worst case scenario we can look at right now with these biometric surveillance systems is the what the Chinese Communist Party does with one group of people, because that's usually what these systems are used against. They target an individual, a terrorist, or a group of people, the terrorists and their friends. With the Chinese, it's the Uyghurs. And so they see this group of individuals as threatening and they have required something called physicals for all, which is every Uyghur in China must register their fingerprints, their iris scans and their DNA with the government. And this goes back, you know, six, seven years now. Um, that program, as I say, was taken out of the playbook of the Defense Department in Afghanistan. Okay, so you can argue, oh, the Defense Department was doing it for this great reason to try to stop terrorism. Though, well, the, the Chinese Communist Party is doing it for this for these reasons simply to identify a group of people. And we know about the 
the camps where people are, but the people that I know that work in the intelligence community pointed something out to me that I touch upon in the end of First Platoon that is very suspect. And it show satellite images show Uyghur cemeteries being dug up across China. And the Chinese government's statement on that is, oh, we're building a new road. But it's like strangely convenient that all these new roads happen to be going directly through Uyghur cemeteries. But those that I know that work in DNA and forensic DNA believe that the bones of the Uyghurs are being examined, the DNA inside of them, so that the Chinese government can create a giant draconian match hit of anyone in the country that has a drop of Uyghur blood. And I know we're all thinking right now of the beginning of this conversation, which is the Third Reich and how that all began. Identifying people by blood. Very frightening. Yeah. Can, can I just ask Annie there, where has this brought you now, Annie, in terms of what, what do you see? That was a good question Derek asked about what would happen in the States. What do you see happening in the world? And, and does that keep you up at night? Do you, do you rest easy from what you've learned from all your research? They're not lullaby tales, are they? So do you, do you feel, does, has it affected you and made you more concerned on a personal level? It's an interesting question to be asking me in the fall of 2022, because before this time, my answer was always, no, 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 it's been much worse, right? Because I, having spent a number of books looking at the Cuban Missile Crisis from different angles and nuclear war in general, and I had the great fortune of interviewing Manhattan Project scientists when I was working on Area 51 and interviewing a lot of people who saw the nuclear bomb tests in the Pacific and the having looked at so much of that footage, just the, I would always say, no, 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 no. Nothing is as bad as nuclear war. So none of this comes close. And of course, the reason why the Defense Department always, um, the, the sort of underpinning of all of these programs is always, well, it's better than nuclear war, which I believe is true. And so where we are now, and having spent the last 18 months writing a book about nuclear war, which I cannot say much more about other than this book frightens even me. So there is nothing scarier than nuclear war. That certainly led me to have some nightmares and sleepless nights as a child in the 80s. I was absolutely paranoid about nuclear war. Fasc I'm still fascinated by it. And um, obviously, I it's just a, it's a childhood uh, hang up that I have. But yeah, you're right. And, and certainly to bring us history up to yesterday, uh, North Korea launching a missile that I mean, I looked this up when I saw it. That's a misprint. Mach 22, this thing flies at. You know what I mean? You're talking, it go to Sydney in an hour from New York. You know, that's insane. Absolutely insane. So yeah, very, very I'm going to, in, in the Pentagon's brain, mm. um, which is the program, a book I wrote about DARPA, the, the Defense Department Science Agency, basically. And I, when DARPA first began in the late 50s, its first director of science and technology, Herb York, wanted to know exactly how long it took from 
a missile in the Soviet Union to strike a, a target on the East Coast. He wanted that number in seconds. And so he hired the smartest scientists in America to figure that out for him. They're called the Jason scientists. And I found these declassified papers in Herb York's, um, actually, I don't even know if they were declassified. I found these papers in Herb York's archives at a university down in San Diego. And that number is 1,600 seconds. So it takes 26 minutes and 40 seconds for a missile to go from there to here. And that hasn't changed. Right. Yeah. I don't like the idea of that. And in, wow. as far as like with all the people that you are talking to, and obviously now again with, with your, your new project, uh, like, do you have friends in the defense of Arbor? Like how do they view you and, and, your, and your work? What do they make of it? Well, it's very interesting because I, um, I've, I've been at this for a while and I love what I do. I really love what I do. And I'm amazed at how lucky I am that I get to interview and spend time with some of the most extraordinary civil servants imaginable, you know, people who do things and find themselves in situations that I couldn't fathom. And they share freely with me the stories of how they got into those situations and out of them because they're still alive. And many of their friends have died. So that part of it is, is really an absolute joy. But I forgot the first part of the question. <laughs> it was, what, what, do they, what do they make of you and your work? work? Like, do you, are you considered oh, yes. a threat in any way? Or you know, yes. are people yes. easy with information? Yes. Well, think, I guess what I meant to say is things change if you stay with it long enough, right? So I've been writing books for 12 years now. And like an example, going back to Area 51, which was my first book, okay? Um, so I, had, I was interviewing the most interesting guys ever. They were in their 80s and 90s. And they developed the you know, stealth technology for the CIA out at Area 51, the U-2 spy plane, the A-12 ox cart, which is the, the, the plane in the X-Men comic books, the SR-71. It had a precursor. The CIA had a secret program. This was classified until... 2009, which is why I got the story, because the scientists were like, okay, we'll tell you about this. And I spent so much time with these guys. They were all World War II heroes. I would drive out to Las Vegas. I mean, it, no one had asked them about what they did in 40, 50 years. And if they did, they couldn't say anything because it was all classified. So here I come along wanting to know. And we just had this rip-roaring fun time. And it was really remarkable. And it rolled, they all, a lot of them worked for Skunk Works, which is the Lockheed super secret, you know, department that was creating stealth technology. So the CIA suddenly decides that they want to have all these guys come to what's called the bubble at CIA and lecture to the young kids to explain to them now that this program has been declassified. But they had all signed NDAs with me, right? So they were like, well, we can't do this unless you bring Annie and journalists can't go to the CIA. And the CIA had such a negative reaction to me. They, um, suffice to say, that was a very interesting experience. We did go. I had to say this, not say that. I couldn't, I mean, it was just, I was looked upon out of the corners of everyone's eyes, like I was some rebel rouser. Flash to last month, I did a podcast 
that is run by a group of CIA covert action uh, officers who asked me to be on the show. And we had a lovely talk. And one of them said to me afterwards, you do know when we want to find things out about certain things, we read your books. Wow. But we're not supposed to say that. And I found that a kind of lovely pat on the back because the, the point of all that to me is about sticking with it, right? Like you just, you don't know what someone, what their intentions are in the beginning perhaps. But I know with me, I always try to tell the story in the most neutral way, right? So that's why I, I, I never, you would not know my politics. And to me, that's important in the United States of America today. Other people can handle that, but I don't get into that because the things I write about, national security, nuclear weapons, ubiquitous technical surveillance, you know, this stuff is really important, I think. And it shouldn't matter if you're on the left or the right. I'm not a gotcha journalist. I am after the truth as someone sees it. And I try to make that really clear. This is what this person says. And then I may say, this is what this person says. But so far, so good that my sources stay in touch with me because they tend to appreciate that I was able to get their amazing story down on the historical record. Yeah, good job, well done brilliantly told and keep on keeping up <laughs> talking to you uh we we yeah. could go on all night but I'll, I'll have to go for dinner here it's hamburg time um, a little bit ahead of you guys but yeah uh, hopefully i won't be kept up all night but it's definitely stuff you're thinking about isn't it derek it's just like oh, eye-opening and jaw-dropping stuff yeah, listen, I mean, listeners, you've all got to check out Annie's work. And, and it's very yeah. true that that non-political stance, it's what makes it yeah. believable. And the storytelling is what just sucks you right in and bits out the other side going, maybe I don't know if I want to know that, <laughs> but uh, <then> I do, <laughs> hey. Um, you know, brilliant stuff. I'm excited now to, I'll be looking out for your next book. And maybe, maybe you come back and visit us again. Closer to that time. <laughs> Be an honor. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you get well soon. I hope it's only a little cold and not at that start of the flu. And thank you very much, Annie Jacobson. Thank you thank so you much. Thank you so much, Annie. Thank you. Well, Neil, yeah, there's a lot of scary stuff that goes on. And what happens in America tends to filter out to the rest of the world. But I don't know, man, I'm not into this whole surveillance thing. I, I don't like the fact that we're just getting profiles. It just makes you feel less free or something. It's grand for me. I'm out in the sticks in Leitrim mm. on, the, on the two acres. and I'm not off grid, but yeah, it's actually getting increasingly more difficult to be off-grid, even if, if you, you want it to be. Tech will yeah. track you somewhere along the line. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Great, uh, great listen to Annie there. She's got loads of stories to tell. Those, those books are yeah. really, good, really, really interesting. Brilliant guest. Brilliant guest. Yeah. Listen out for Annie's interview coming up, guys. Well, obviously, when you'll be hearing this, you'll be hearing it. That was Annie Jacobson there. All her works you can check out, obviously, and keep on listening, folks. That's it. And, and please, yeah, hit the likes and please leave a review on whatever platform you're listening to us on. It all helps. and Our listenership is growing. So, yeah, we'd like to keep it up. Thanks, folks. Good night.